Thank you so much. Handbells, would you stand with me now, please, as Beth comes this morning to read to us from John chapter 12. Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is the word of the Lord from John 12, verses 1 through 11. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. As we begin this morning, I want you to picture in your mind what you think an idol looks like. I-D-O-L. Picture in your mind an idol. It may be one that you have seen. It may be one that you have imagined. It may be something that you've read from Scripture. Whatever comes into your mind, I want you to think about that first thought. What is an idol? What does an idol look like? The Bible does have lots of examples of, of objects and images that people worshipped in the ancient world. When God first gave commands to his people that were written down as the law, the first two commandments were all about idols. They were about not worshipping any other god or supposed god than God himself, the God of Israel. And they were about not worshiping images and idols, anything that a person might craft or make with their hands, or any image or idea that someone might say, you are my God, and replace worship of God himself with that idol. In our own culture here in the United States, we have many idols, but we don't typically think of our idols as being made of wood or metal or stone. We don't typically think of our idols as statues or altars, though we do have a few of those things. Most of our idols take the form of ideas. They take the form of attitudes, things that we commit our hearts to, our lives to, things that we are willing to give our very soul to in some instances. We have our idols as well. Tertullian of Carthage, one of the earliest church leaders after the New Testament called idolatry the original sin, the principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world. He said idolatry is actually adultery against God because idolatry is 
anytime we give the love that's only supposed to be due to God to something else, we are unfaithful. We love someone or something else in God's place, and it's like committing spiritual adultery. When we think about the many idols that exist in our culture that beckon to us, come to me, serve me, worship me, if we think about them in terms of where we expend most of our money and our time and our energy, we have a lot of really big cultural idols. Things like entertainment and sports and technology. The, the, the idea in our culture that we, we need to make something of ourselves, so it might be the, the self-improvement culture, or it might be just simply the accumulation of stuff trying to keep up with someone else, trying to maintain an image, that always insatiable desire for more and more and more. Yes, we have our idols too. And even inside the church, idolatry can be a threat. Sometimes it comes in the form of what we call syncretism, and we've talked about this before, where it's not so much that there's an overt idol that we worship or idea or attitude or even person that we worship, but we, we blend in, we mix in some of those idolatrous attitudes of our culture with our Christian faith. And so we have these idols that, that creep into our midst, but they're packaged in, in Christian packaging. And so we don't always notice that we too can be awfully consumed by materialism or consumerism itself. Sometimes our Christian faith can look an awful lot like our American culture. And people look at, at the church and they say, I can't really tell the difference. Christianity can be syncretized. It can be blended with nationalism, humanism, where we say it's, it's all about making ourselves feel better and putting human beings at the center of the universe. Or even ethnocentrism, where sometimes we fall into that trap of saying, you know, aren't most Christians just kind of those people who look like me and think like me? And all of those things, when they get blended in with authentic Christian faith, are disastrous to our Christian witness. They take away from the distinctive nature of biblical faith and the Christ-centered gospel. We could just say it this way, when our faith and expressions of our faith become about anything else except for Christ himself, we are in danger of worshiping idols. As we come to John chapter 12, this is a unique chapter in the middle of the ones we've read, where in this chapter there are no miracles, there are no miraculous signs, there are none of Jesus' I am statements that we've been seeing throughout the gospel. These are simply stories that give us a glimpse into the hearts of a few different people. And in this chapter, in this narrative, we see some hearts that are faithful to God and they belong completely to Christ. And we see some hearts that are completely consumed by their idols. It might be greed it might be power, it might be the praise of human beings. But we see all of that on display here in John chapter 12. And Jesus, again, with people, gets to the heart of the matter. Thankfully, chapter 12 begins with a great example. 
an example of genuine love and extravagant worship that takes place six days before the Passover. Now, now here's what John is telling us so that we can, we can put this in its proper chronology. This was on Saturday night, right after the Sabbath came to an end. This is the Saturday night before Palm Sunday. So remember how I said when we get into the second half of John, time really slows down. In the first half of the book, John's taking us through several examples and stories that happened over a period of almost three years. But in the second half of the book, things slow down, and basically from John, the end of 11 on, we're, we're just talking about one week. And John is telling us a lot of detail about what happened in that final week before Jesus went to the cross. So here we are, the night before Palm Sunday, and this is a celebratory meal. After all, the Sabbath has ended. What do you do when the Sabbath ends? You come together and you feast. You no longer have to abide by all the Sabbath laws and rules. You come together and you celebrate that the day of rest is over. A meal has been prepared back in Bethany, in the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. A meal in honor of Jesus. But John tells us here, Jesus is not the only guest of honor. All of a sudden, old Lazarus has become sort of a celebrity in his own right. People want to come and see with their own eyes what does it look like to behold a man who was dead for four days and is now alive again. So Lazarus, he's gathering a little bit of a crowd himself. And here in John chapter 12, as they gather together for the meal, we might think they're in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus again, but this story actually appears in Matthew and in Mark, and we're told they're in the home of a man named Simon the leper, who either at some point had had leprosy and died, but they still were in his home, or he had had leprosy and was healed or was delivered from it. But what's curious about that is that here John tells us Martha was still the one serving. Just as we saw last week, I think we again get a glimpse into Martha's personality. Even when she's not in her own home, she likes to be in charge. And Martha's the one serving. And there's Lazarus, who had once been dead, now alive and reclining at the table with Jesus. But the, the centerpiece of this story is not what Lazarus did, but it's once again what Mary did. Mary took about a pint of pure nard. That would be spike nard oil imported from the Himalayas, imported from places in India, Nepal, and China in the Himalayas. It was very expensive. And John's going to go even further than the other gospel writers to tell us how expensive it was, that it was the equivalent of a year's wages. So this was not just like the upgraded level of oil that a, per a person could buy or, or perfume. But this was something extremely expensive. And because of that, it was only used very sparingly in very small amounts. But John tells us that Mary took this expensive perfume. Matthew and Mark say it was held in an alabaster jar. And she took the entire thing, a pint, around 11 ounces... And she anointed Jesus with all of it. 
And as that oil and, it, and its fragrance poured over Jesus, she wiped his feet with her hair. In the first service, when I said that part, we had a child in the room who said, Ew! Wiped his feet with her hair. But Mary does this as an act of extravagant worship and extravagant love. And it's one thing to pursue extravagant things for ourselves, even to pursue extravagant things for ourselves and say it's in Jesus' name, which many people do, and to be extravagant in our love and in our worship towards Jesus. And that's exactly what Mary did. She anointed him. She was fully aware of this moment. And I want you to get this picture, because this is more than just Middle Eastern hospitality. This is more than Mary trying to put on a show. It's certainly more than Mary accidentally spilling too much perfume over Jesus' head. Everyone else at the table is celebrating. There's laughter, there's joy, there's feasting. The Sabbath is over. Jesus is there. Lazarus is back. Everybody's celebrating. But Mary proves once again that she does not miss the moment. She doesn't miss what's happening that as she looks into the eyes of jesus remember this is mary of bethany who sat at his feet and was taught as a disciple who had been learning to walk in step with jesus who seems to have such a deep relationship with jesus that has brought her an awareness that she knows what god is doing in her midst while everybody else is talking and celebrating mary looks into jesus eyes and she picks up on what Jesus is going to say later. His soul was deeply troubled. Because this now headed towards the Passover while everyone else was celebrating and crowds were gathering around, Jesus knew the cup from which he was going to have to drink. Just a few days later that he would die his sacrificial death in the most excruciating way for the sins of human beings, for my sin and for yours. And while everybody else in the room, including the male disciples, seem to be oblivious, Mary looks into Jesus' eyes, and she thought to herself, what can I do to show him that I not only believe, but I see? I see what's happening. I know what's, what the Lord has been telling us is about to come to pass. And so she anointed him in the best way she knew possible, and she didn't leave one drop of that fragrant oil in the bottle. Mary's extravagant act of love and worship filled that room like the fragrance of the perfume itself. And still to this day, we remember this very unique way in which she showed her love and worship to Christ. But there's more to the story. We have Mary's act of love and extravagant worship, but then John contrasts Mary with Judas. And Judas, rather than being authentic and extravagant towards Christ, had a sinful heart, and he demonstrated counterfeit righteousness. Judas pretending to care about whether or not this money could be used for the poor opened his insincere mouth and he complained about the wastefulness 
Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? After all, it was worth a year's wages. And notice that Judas is mentioned here along with what he would do later. Jesus who would later betray him. In fact, it's rare that John ever mentions Judas and doesn't also mention his betrayal. It's rare even in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that at some point when Judas' names come up, that they name come up, they don't all also say, and remember what he did. Remember that he was a traitor. Remember that he betrayed the Lord. Remember that he was greedy and he was selfish and he sold Jesus out. And this is a lesson for us all. That we don't remember Judas as one of the twelve, as being faithful. We don't remember Judas for the bulk of his time with Jesus where he appeared to be a disciple. No one names their child Judas, right? We have lots of Johns, lots of Marks and Matthews and Pauls. We don't have a lot of little Judases running around. Because we remember Judas for his betrayal. I actually have a, a bookshelf in my office. It's, it's by itself in a different part of my study. And on this shelf, there are books of, of pastors, teachers, leaders, Christian authors who have had a very public moral failure and fall, who have disgraced the name of Christ, who have ruined their public witness, and I no longer want their books to be on the shelf with others. And I keep that shelf for one reason, because I don't like to throw away books. I don't know why. Something just feels wrong about destroying or throwing them away. But I certainly don't want to give them away, put them in a box, and then somebody else have that in their hands. What it's become for me, as sadly, over the years, that shelf has grown as a reminder that any single one of us we could stack up a, a long list of the good we've done and the faithful years, but just one failure, one fall, one moment where we disgrace the name of Christ could be the only thing anybody remembers about us. And that's true for Judas. And John tells us more. He says, by the way, we know that he didn't care about the poor because we learned later he was a thief all along. We had this money bag that, if you remember from Luke, Luke tells us that it was a group of women who were donating to Jesus' ministry. They were financing what, what the Jesus and the disciples were doing, and, and Judas kept the bag with the money. And he thought it was okay, or whether or not he thought it was okay, he chose to pilfer money from the bag for himself. And John says that. He used to help himself. To what was put into it but jesus hearing what judas said again as he opened his insincere, insincere mouth he knew the intentions of both mary and judas and so he responded in verse 7 leave her alone and what happened jesus is going to reveal what mary had done was anoint the savior but in the midst of Mary's anointing of the Savior, there also is this reminder of caring for the poor. Now, verse 8, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I have a friend named Matt who says this is my least favorite book, least favorite verse in the Bible. 
because Matt is one who has committed his life to serving the poor and the vulnerable around the world. And he says, so often I've heard people use this verse as an excuse to not care for the poor. Use this, sort of, this verse sort of as a, as a justification to say that, that the poor are an afterthought. And they're not really a part of gospel ministry. Serving and caring for them is not really a part of gospel ministry. We have gospel ministry and then some who, who sort of have those bleeding hearts and they care for the poor. The reason why we read Deuteronomy 15 as our reading earlier in the service is to remember where this verse came from. This isn't the only time that God's word says, the poor you will always have with you. No, Jesus here was quoting scripture from the Old Testament. Many of you will probably know this name, Dr. Mac Roark. Dr. Roark was one of my professors at OBU. He was actually my, my supervisor, my advisor. And he was the interim pastor here in this church years ago. So many of you remember Dr. Roark. He was the guy who would preach an entire sermon from his Greek New Testament, never have an English Bible in front of him. In one of my first Dr. Roark classes, we were, this was a New Testament class, but we were talking about some passage from the Old Testament. It was a little bit obscure in my mind, but I was a, a, a second-year Bible student at OBU, and just to be completely honest, I had no idea who this person was from the Old Testament. And I had no idea where the story was found. But as Dr. Roark was talking about him, wouldn't you know who he calls on? He calls on me. And he asked me some question about this Old Testament story, and I had no idea. And he could see the blank look in my eyes. And I'll never forget to this day, Dr. Roark said, You know, I have an Old Testament if you'd like to borrow it sometime. And you can read it and learn. Here is another reminder that the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is deeply related to what Jesus fulfilled and what the New Testament church fulfills. When Jesus is quoting a Scripture and you see that notation in your Bible, it's a good reminder to go back and look and see the context of the passage. Deuteronomy 15 doesn't say, there will always be poor in the land, so... Deal with them when you have to, but keep your eyes on the ball. Deuteronomy 15 says, I command you to be open-handed. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be tight-fisted. But as my people, among the poor and vulnerable, be open-handed, be generous, be loving. And Jesus didn't just say this, but he modeled it. Think about the family in which he was born. Think about the way he spent most of his life. Think about the way Jesus said, the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. And the many poor, vulnerable, and suffering people that Jesus went directly to as the focus of his ministry. Tonight in the chapel, we'll talk more about what this means, how Je Jesus identified with the poor at 6 o'clock. But back to this story Jesus is not saying the poor you always have with you so you have an excuse not to care. God cares for the poor not just because they have less than others but because think about the conditions that often go with poverty. Hunger and sickness, oppression, exploitation, vulnerability, and death. Jesus' statement was not a comment on how 
to treat the poor, but it was a defense of Mary's extravagant act of worship. In other words, Jesus is saying, as soon as you leave here, you will have ample opportunity to care for the poor again. But right now in this moment, Mary saw what none of the rest of you took notice, that in this moment, Jesus sitting at the center of the table, God's will and what God was doing in Jesus Christ to bring salvation to us was on full display. And once again, Mary did not miss it. It was intended, Jesus said, that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. In other words, she prepared me for what's coming next. In Matthew's version of this story, Matthew 26, 13, Matthew says that Jesus said, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world from now on, what Mary has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are, 2,000 years later, remembering this story. But also after this, Matthew says, Judas immediately went to the chief priests and he offered to deliver Jesus to them. So again, as I said at the beginning, we have a glimpse into the hearts of different people. And now what is clear is that Mary believed and Judas did not. Mary understood. Judas did not. Even though he was in the inner circle he was one of the 12. He was one of the guys walking with Jesus. The true condition of his heart has become clear. Sadly, Judas is not the only villain in this narrative. But as the story concludes, at least what we read, verses 9 through 11, remember, and again, I love this, Lazarus is drawing a crowd. A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was in the house eating the meal, and they came. But they also came because they wanted to see Lazarus. We want to see this guy who's risen from the dead. And then in verse 10, those Jewish leaders, in this case the chief priests, when I hear the word, the, the, the term chief priests, I think the, the chief guys who should have known better. They're now not only plotting to kill Jesus, but they want to kill poor old Lazarus as well. Now think about the irony of that for just a minute. They want to kill the guy that Jesus brought back to life. But the reality is that Lazarus' own life has become a threat to them. The religious leaders, the men who were supposed to be the mouthpiece for God among the people, they are now like so many others in history before and, and, and many who still live today who decide that a human life, someone's life, is a threat to them and the only way to resolve it is to snuff that life out. They want to kill Lazarus too. And here we see that whether we're talking about Judas, the religious leaders, sinful jealousy is at work. And sinful jealousy has no place in the Christian heart and has no place in the heart of the person of God. But as we look at Mary and then we look at Judas and the religious leaders, what a contrast exists indeed. This quote from James M. Hamilton Jr., another of my former professors, this time from seminary, 
is so appropriate here. He talks about the, the unparalleled opportunity that the Jewish leaders had if they only would have believed. The Jewish leadership had an unparalleled opportunity to embrace Jesus as their King and Lord. For what other nation has ever had a leader who could raise the dead? And what other nation could point to someone their leader had raised from the dead? Yet rather than celebrate Lazarus, they wanted to kill him. And the religious leaders didn't stop here. They continued pushing forward their schemes. And so John tells us a little more. If we jump to verse 17, again, there's a crowd forming around Jesus and Lazarus. And the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to spread the word and tell everyone what they had seen. And many people, because they heard that Jesus had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, This is getting us nowhere. Look now, the whole world is going after him. Look how the entire world seems to want to follow Jesus. Our efforts are doing and accomplishing nothing. It's interesting that John says here, reporting their words here, the whole world has gone after him because in the very next verse, verse 20, the next group that comes to meet Jesus is not a group of Jews. It's a group of Greeks. It's a picture of what's going to happen later that this group of people now who Andrew brings to Jesus are not from the Jewish background. They're Greeks. They're Gentiles. And when we get to the book of Acts later on, far more Gentiles are going to believe than people who come from a Jewish background. And even here we see a picture that Jesus is the good news for the nations. That someday every tribe, tongue, every nation will re be represented before the Lamb. And even the religious leaders note it. The whole world seems to be going after him. But just a little bit further into verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Imagine what it would have been like to be there, to hear the master teach, to be present and to hear the words of Jesus. Imagine what it would have been like to witness him give sight to a blind person, to heal someone who had been sick for 30 or more years, to raise someone from the dead, to see it, to witness it, to, 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 to smell the smells and taste the tastes and all that had taken place and to still not believe. John said, and the reason we've titled this series That You May Believe, I've written and told you all these stories so that you would believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And yet here John tells us, even after all they had seen, many of the religious leaders still would not believe. They were the people that Isaiah prophesied about. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They could not believe because, as Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. They can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor will they turn and be healed. Isaiah helps us understand that this isn't something to blame God for. 
But just as Isaiah had seen God's glory and he believed, he had seen the glory of Jesus Christ himself and believed, so too these religious leaders beheld the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And they proved to be exactly what Isaiah said they would be. Their hearts were hardened, their eyes were blind, and they refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and Lord. Yet, at the same time, verse 42, there were many among even some of the leaders who did believe in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. And John says it wasn't just that they were afraid, but even further, there were some Jews and some of the leaders who believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't say it publicly. Why? Because they loved human praise more than praise from God. So again, what do we see in John 12? The idols of the human heart are on full display. There are some who refuse to follow Jesus or acknowledge him because they're greedy like Judas. Others because they don't want to give up what they have. They have a lot to lose. They don't want to give up their power. They don't want to give up their privilege. And so they too refuse to believe. And still others who who are willing to, to say yes to Jesus in some way. But when it comes time to acknowledge him before people, they don't. Because they value human praise more than praise from God. You want to talk about an idol that has stood the test of time. Our itching ears for the praise of people is something that affects all of us. But again, John in this chapter has not just given us the bad examples, but he's shown us the picture of those whose hearts were connected to God. And whose eyes were open. Lazarus, sure. Martha, sure. But Mary, again, is the example here. She did not miss what God was doing in her midst. She did not miss the opportunity to not just believe in Jesus, but to let that belief grow and flower into attitudes and actions publicly that represented true, authentic faith and extravagant worship of Christ. So today I ask you as we close, simply, simply a couple of questions. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Or are you like the religious leaders? Are you today living with blinded eyes and a hardened heart towards Christ? And maybe also towards others whom he's told you to love? When you think about Mary, does Jesus have your whole heart? like he had hers are you walking in step with him like she did or is there something else that's your priority and motivation for judas it was money and greed for the religious leaders it was power and privilege for others it was their love for human praise but for mary jesus had her whole heart and she demonstrated that with genuine love and extravagant worship So as we bring our time together to a close in these parting moments where we're going to sing one more song, we're going to take one more time to say to the Lord, yes, we are in your presence. Speak to our hearts. May it be said of us as individuals and as people that our love for Christ is genuine 
and our worship for him today is extravagant. Let's pray together.